The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Studios of Inspire FM, the time is now six o'clock. Assalamu alaikum, you're listening to Inspire FM, 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live. Uh, you're listening to me, Zafari Kabal. Uh, and this, uh, again, is Friday Night Live, uh, where we discuss topical issues which are pertinent to the Muslim community or which are relevant and of interest to the Muslim community, inshallah. So there's been lots happening in the last week or so since we spoke last week. Uh, we have a new Prime Minister for a, for a start. We have a new Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, who's the new Prime Minister. Now, what does that mean? Boris has been a colourful character uh, leading up to his election as a Prime Minister. Will he change? Will he change his colours? Will he be different? Will he be inclusive? Like is is actually sort of mentioned uh, in his uh, speech to say that he's going to have a cabinet which is representative of modern Britain. Does that include Muslims as well? Does it include Muslims? Now, uh, one person who was critical of Boris Johnson during his electrical election uh, campaign uh, has actually actually resigned from the Conservative Party. That was Muhammad Amin. I think he mentioned the fact that in his uh, article or the um, the uh, the comments that that he made was that Boris Johnson. Uh, is not morally fit to be Prime Minister, but he is the Prime Minister now. So we're going to have a conversation with Muhammad Ami. Uh, that's the person that we're talking about. He's the former chairman of the Muslim uh, Conservative Forum. Assalamu alaikum, Muhammad Ami. Wa alaikum Right, welcome back. It's been a while since we had a conversation with yourself. I, I know at one point you used to be quite a regular on our, on our show. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, you are no longer the chairman of the Conservative Muslim Forum. Well, I was expelled from the Conservative Muslim Forum on the 20th of June. Right. After I gave an interview on the BBC Radio 4 Today program. Oh, yes. On yes. That's right. 14th funny. of June about my views about Mr. Johnson. And right. the Conservative Muslim Forum, my colleagues and Lord Sheikh, the president came under enormous pressure from the party chairman right. to get rid of me, and that's what they did. Right. So, so you left uh, the conservative. Well, I was right. I didn't leave. I was asked to resign. You, you, you resigned. You were kicked. You were kicked. I'd done nothing wrong. So you kicked out under duress, basically, right, yes. for for making your views clear about the party and that your views i guess were based on the fact that there were a number of number of people a number of sort of conservative as people associated with the conservative party who'd made very unkind comments about the muslim community and you raised your voices and you got fired for that well to be precise i my view is that mr johnson okay is morally unfit because a i I have formed the view that he no longer cares about the difference between truth and falsehood. And secondly, he's willing to do or say anything that will advance his personal career, regardless of the harm it causes other people. Right. This is two reasons why I feel he's morally unfit to be party leader. I couldn't serve in a party where he was the leader. Mm. I couldn't try to get him elected. And therefore, uh, I have now resigned. So you're no longer part of the Conservative Party. I resigned on Tuesday, the day that the election result was announced. Right. Okay. So what, what does what does that mean? Will you continue to play a role 
um, in the, I guess, conservative circles? Or is that it? You've actually sort of, uh, um, you know, effectively broken off right with the Conservative Party and that's it, you're... Well, it's a, it's a difficult and complicated question. Remember, I've been a member of the Conservative yes. Party for 36 years. Yes. I'm still a great believer in free market capitalism and uh, the things that the Conservative Party itself stands for. Mm -hmm. uh, I... I'm not sure how I'm going to vote, and I always vote tactically anyway because sure. of our first-past-the-post voting system. Sure. I live in a constituency which is a safe Labour constituency in Manchester, and in London, where my flat is, mm. it's a Labour-Lib Dem sort of contested constituency, but the Conservative vote has never been anywhere in that constituency anyway. But Are, are you considering voting for Labour then? Uh, well, uh, it's an interesting question. I, quite possibly, in, there's, no, there's no point in my voting in Manchester Gorton. Mm. And because I live in two places, yeah. I can choose where I vote. It's against the law in the general election for me to vote in both constituencies. Sure, sure, yeah. I can be on the electoral roll in both places, yeah. but I can only vote in one constituency where I get to choose where I want to vote. Sure, sure. And there's no point in voting in Manchester. It's a rock-solid, safe Labour seat. In the past, in Southwark, Bermondsey and Old Southwark, I have voted Lib Dem because Simon Hughes, who used to be the Lib Dem MP, yeah. somebody I know personally, I was very supportive of him, mm. and I'm quite sympathetic to the Liberal Democrat Party anyway. Mm. So, However, what's interesting is that my Labour MP in Southwark, Neil Coyle MP, is a die-hard Remainer. Right. So I'm not sure how I'm going to vote if there's a general election. So are you, are, were you actually a, a Brexiteer then? Were you, or are you? No, I'm a, I'm a diehard Remainer myself. I believe that uh, for, since the age of 12, mm. I believe in the European Union, or as it used to be called, the European Community. Yeah. And I believe it's extremely harmful to the UK to leave the European Union. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, so, uh, to be honest, where does that leave you now, the, the fact that you, you, I guess you're... Uh, does it strengthen your position, the fact that if you join another party, which is a Remain party, and, and therefore you can play a more positive role in another party, or, or are you still harked towards a, a maybe a slight change in direction for the for the Conservative party? What's, what's well, the... if I thought Mr Johnson was going to be there as party leader for years and years and years, hmm. I would join another political party. Right. And most probably the Liberal Democrats, although I can't guarantee that, but that's the most likely one. And, however, if I think he's only going to last sort of six months, then I don't see much point in joining the Liberal Democrats or any other party, mm. because if Mr. Johnson ceases to be party leader, I may well rejoin the Conservative Party. So, what, to, to be honest, um, <clears throat> do you think that he's going to last six months? Is there is a possibility that, that maybe he'll have an election and get defeated? I think there's every possibility he could crash and burn. Right. Okay. And then your the reasons for that being, uh, he has, is leading a party which the party as a whole is very supportive of Brexit. Sure. Uh, overwhelmingly, but its MPs are not. They're mm. divided. Mm. If he leads the party to defeat, I think that defeat will be totally associated with him personally. If you look at the government that he's organised right now. Mm. It's a hard leave government. It is, it is, yes. And 
But but Sajid, Sajid Javid, I mean, he, was he not on the fence at one point? Is he not, not, Sajid Javid, his position on the European Union is quite interesting. He's historically been a Eurosceptic. Yeah. In the referendum campaign where he was a government minister, he supported Remain, but with a certain amount of reluctance. Okay. Which I think is one reason he sort of survived into the Boris Johnson sort of government. Hmm. So, so I, I guess there are, I guess, a few people who are in the in, in the actual cabinet, at least anyway, who are at least doubters uh, uh, Brexit, at least anyway, if not not Remainers. Well, there are some people in the cabinet and in the government right now who voted Remain, but they've all had to sign up to Mr. Johnson's demand that mm. they support leaving on 31 October, do or die. Mm. It's quite clear that every minister has had to agree to that as a, as a condition of being in the government. Right. Okay. Right. And then that's 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 the bottom line as far as uh, as far as he's concerned. And all of these remainers even are probably bought into that. Then they they, ha- they have to sign up to it, whether they like it or not. If you want to be in the government, mm. some people have chosen to walk away, mm. and I admire them for walking away. But those who think it's more important to be in the government, they have had to sign up to that. Mm. Whether in their heart of hearts they like the idea or not. Mm. So let, let, let's turn to to this this Conservative Muslim Forum. Uh, to, to be honest, I think um, I, I guess you're you're the only person who brought a, a sense of uh, well the, the, the public um, awareness of it at least anyway, if not nothing else. Uh, so minus you, it, it's it's not an organisation as such, is it? The Conservative Muslim Forum. Yeah. I don't think that's fair. Lord Sheikh was the founder of the Conservative yeah. Forum in 2005. He has a, quite a high personal profile himself. And right. He has now stepped in as its acting chairman. We have other people in the Conservative Muslim Forum who are now on the approved candidates list. Mm. And so I don't think it's right to say that I was the only person with a public profile. Obviously, I had more visibility as mm. chairman than my colleagues did and we'd agreed that I would be the guy that did the media interviews. Sure. Of course, now that I'm not there, somebody else will have to do that. But but to, to be honest, I think if you, uh, having, looking back at the discussions we've had, there, there's no, apart from Islamophobia, right, which I guess uh, campaigning sort of against Islamophobia and highlighting that within the Conservative Party, there's not a lot it does, does it? Uh, well, it's chosen deliberately not first of all not to take lots of policy positions mm. you want to know as a matter as a general principle what the conservative most important thinks about something if you look at the conservative party's official policy on that issue sure. the conservative most important would support well, that and there's nothing well, unreasonable about that well, yeah, I think we, we talked about this in the past. There's only a lot of things that which are, I guess, of interest to Muslims, the Palestine issue, the Kashmir issue, all of the issues, right, which I think there is a bit of a voice required. Uh, you know, the, this organization chose to stay silent on. Correct. <laughs> I, I was I was one of the people strongly behind that. I mean, I know, I know. And, and you visited Israel as well. Yeah. And m- many years ago, yeah. uh, somebody who is a passionate campaigner for Kashmiri independence yeah. got involved with the Conservative Muslim Forum a bit and he was trying to get us, the CMF, to take a position on Kashmir yeah. and we categorically refused. The Kashmir issue is very contentious between India and Pakistan. Yeah. The government has, a, the British government has its own position on the Kashmir dispute which is frankly it stays well away from it mm. and uh, 
there's no well that's not always been a case though is it i mean, I mean it's, okay. it's, it's the it's the position of the conservative party and the current regime i guess right within the conservative party but that's not always been a position because i remember uh the days of of, of labor uh there were actually quite for trying to find a resolution to Kashmir. And I think uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the foreign secretary who actually visited India to try and, and start that discussion process. Well, the, the government, uh, even uh, even now, right, the government would undoubtedly like India and Pakistan to agree a resolution to the Kashmir dispute. But what the UK government is not going to do is to go out on a limb and take a position supporting one side or the other. No, I agree. I agree. But, but I, I guess... Uh, organizations like the Conservative Muslim Forum, right, uh, at least they, they can shed some light. They can take an interest. And by looks of things, it tried to stay away from that as much as possible, didn't it? Well, our own members will have different views mm. on the Kashmir dispute, just as sure. our members will have different views on Israel and Palestine. And I would much rather that our people individually speak up for whatever position they, are, they sure. support or care about. Okay, so let, let's move on to, uh, I guess the next question is around, and this is the... I guess it's the second uh, item of discussion right? we have uh, starting at 6.30, but you might you might like to comment on this, that uh, Boris Johnson made a comment that he's got a cabinet right, which reflects the modern Britain, which includes quite a few people of, uh, well, brown persuasion at least anyway. Uh, in the, so does, is, that, is that genuine or, or do you think it's, it's just a, it's, um, it, it's a, it, you know, there's a, another a reason for it? It's extremely genuine. The Conservative Party has a long tradition of choosing people based on merit. And when I look at the... Well, they've obviously failed with Boris, haven't they? Uh, well, that's what, they tried <laughs> to choose on merit. They haven't chosen Boris because they think he's got blonde hair or because he's white. The people who voted for him voted for him because they think he's the best person to do the job. Which, which so obviously, you obviously disagree person. with. Yes, I disagree with the, with, the, with the choice, but the point is that they have chosen on their perception of merit, not on their perception of race Color. or religion. Really? And, and, and yeah. you, you still have that position, even though there's uh, quite a few people who made comments well, about Muslims? Running, but... Every candidate Boris Johnson was running against for the mm. leadership was white. The, the, Sam Gima, who's of African origin, was trying to run but didn't get the nomination. So the idea that the Tory party's members chose a candidate rather than another candidate because of their race is nonsense. Every candidate was white anyway. That's what I'm saying. I think the, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is that um, there is an attempt to try and be inclusive, right? But some of the comments that Boris so, has made, some of, the, some of the comments yeah. that some of the other Conservative MPs and the councillors have made in the past uh, shows that, that their position on Muslims, at least anyway, are, are quite disturbing. Well, let's come back to... That precise issue, first of all, yeah, yeah. and sticking with this point about, we'll come back to the comments about the Islamophobic comments separately. I'm happy to talk about them, but let's not get sidetracked. Let's take it piece by piece. Okay. So you asked me about the the ministers. The point I want you to understand mm. is that the ministers are not there as tokens. Each mm. of them is a person of high ability, strong educational background. They've had previous careers doing very high power jobs in many cases. And every one of these ministers is there because of their own individual merit, regardless of whether I agree with some of their politics or don't agree with some of their politics. So none of them is there as a token. And this government has more cabinet members from an ethnic minority background than any previous government. Indeed, there are more cabinet ministers today from an ethnic minority 
than all previous cabinet ministers from ethnic minorities for all governments put together. So you, you, you agree with the fact that his cabinet is reflective of modern Britain? Huh? Yeah. But, but a lot, 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 of, lot of the people, I guess, to the Islamophobia question, there's a lot of people actually who are in the cabinet who have very, very disturbing views on Muslims and Islam. Now, how, how, do you, how do you square that? They might have people of color there, but still there is that, that uh, sense of uh, not, very, not being very inclusive in the sense that, that there is still the views held toward Muslims, right, which, which are disturbing. Uh, even there, let's take them bit by bit. Which person and which views? Well, the man himself. <laughs> okay, let, let's take that. I mean, because I, I, I've often been asked the question in the last few weeks. As you imagine, I've given lots of interviews. Yeah, why sure. I think Boris Johnson is Islamophobic. Mm. And the answer I've given is no, but I think it's worse than that. Mm. Uh, I don't have any reason to believe that Boris Johnson is anti Muslim or hates Muslims. However, he will write or do or say anything if it advances his career. So when he wrote his famous column in August of last year mm. about the burqa and the garb, he tried to have it every way. He started off by saying we shouldn't ban it. He then mm. spent most of the, the column, or a big part of the column, mocking Mus and deriding Muslim women who wear it, comparing them to letterboxes and bank robbers. Yeah. And he did that, in my view, because it would make him look more popular with the right wing of the Conservative Party, so he's furthering his ambition, even though it was obvious to anybody with half a brain that this article would lead to Muslim women in the street being verbally abused or sure. sometimes physically abused, which is exactly what happened. Mm. I don't think he wrote that article because he hates Muslim women. I think he wrote that article because he wanted to ruthlessly advance his own career, mm. regardless of the damage that it might cause to Muslim women. Not, but because he doesn't care about other people. That's why I think he's morally unfit. But that's not the same as saying, I, do, I, I think Boris Johnson is anti-Muslim. Right, but he's, he's written articles, he's written a book, he's written a paper in which he says Islam is all sorts of different things in that book. Yes, you're referring to a chapter which he wrote, at the, it's an appendix to yeah. a history book of his. I read that whole appendix, chapter yeah. because a Guardian journalist sent it to me, and I read it all. Hmm. Then gave a quote. I was quoted in the Guardian article that was on the front page hmm. about a week and a bit ago. And even that article, that book chapter, is Mr. Johnson trying to have it both ways. Hmm. He spends most of the article criticizing Islam based upon actually very poor quality. He's only got one very poor quality source. It's a history book by a Frenchman written in the 1930s. Hmm. And frankly, what he says about the history of Islam and the Middle East in that era after the rise of Islam is complete junk. It's simply wrong. Mm. But the thing is, he's, end, picked, he's picked up on he it. Then switches in the second half of this chapter to saying, actually, Christians are pretty awful as well, and we should have Turkey joining the European Union, although in less colorful language. And the overall effect of the chapter, I think, is negative. If you were a a white British non-Muslim person, and you read that book chapter, mm. and you knew nothing else about the history of the Middle East, you would form a very negative view of Muslims. Sure, sure. And I think that, that, that was, you would think you, he was playing to the gallery by writing that, to be honest. Okay, I think you, you made your points very well. Uh, Muhammad Amin, thank you very much for all the contributions that you made to Inspire FM uh, in the past. And I'm sure if you do 
head up any other organization we'll be in touch with you and have a conversation but for today uh, thank you very much and it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you thank you right listeners I'm going to take a short break and we'll be back after these messages Assalamualaikum Inspire FM on 105.1 FM Inspire FM Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live. You're listening to me, Zafar Iqbal, and we were talking about the new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and his colourful past and what he's going to do uh, to the country, and in particular, I guess, what his views and his attitude is going to be towards the Muslims. And we had uh, Muhammad Amin, he's the former chairman of the Conservative Muslim Forum, uh, who was sacked for criticizing Boris Johnson for not having, uh, uh, I think, something to do with moral authority, I think, uh, something along those lines. I don't want to quote him uh, 100%. Uh, percent. Uh, and he was sacked from the Conservative Muslim Forum. Um, and that organization apparently carries on, continues. Not sure what it does, uh, but it carries on. Uh, and uh, Muhammad Amin assures me that it does a lot. Uh, and I'll take his word for it. <laughs> okay, um, right, we're going to move on to, uh, I guess, a related topic, but slightly different. And we're going to talk about Sajid Javid's appointment as a Chancellor. Uh, does it, I mean, picking up on the conversation we we're having early on, uh, was that there are, and this is a fact, there are quite a few uh, people of minority, um, you know, uh, blacks, Asians, etc., within the cabinet, more so than previously. And I have seen a few. A uh, few sort of, uh, I guess, messages on, on WhatsApp, etc., uh, pointing out that uh, you know more people of ethnic minority have been uh, promoted, I guess, to the cabinet than than Labour Party, pointing that out to uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, what does that mean? What does it mean? Does Sajid Javid being appointed as a chancellor? I mean, it's just probably it's a high-profile position. It's a very high-profile position. It's a very important position. Very important promotion, I guess, for Sajid Javid. Um, and I, I guess from a Muslim's perspective or a Pakistani's perspective, depending on what he categorizes himself as, and I think that's that we will start uh, there first of all. What do you think he kind of is it right to categorize oneself? Is it right to sort of put a label on? I think he's tried very hard to to stop a label being put on him, but there's a lot lot of people that actually define a label to, uh, on him. Uh, I'm going to have a conversation with Basid Mahmood. He's a journalist for the Metro, uh, and I'm going to put that question to him. Let's start first of all. Um, I, I guess Sajid Javid, as Mohammed Amin uh, said, he's been appointed because of his uh, of his caliber, his qualities, his qualifications, etc. But the fact that he's a people of color, person of color, uh, there is obviously going to be a label. On him, is it right to, to label him? Is it right to sort of say, yeah, he's a Pakistani, he's a Muslim, he's, I don't know, whatever he is. Is it right to to describe him like that or or not? The fact that he's doing a job and that's it, he's a chancellor. Well, I think I think the way Sajid, whether he likes it or not, he's going to get portrayed like that anyway. Because yes. irrespective of whether he says I am Muslim or I'm not Muslim, that's his choice. The Conservative Party have always been keen to portray him as the first Muslim Home Secretary and now the first Muslim Chancellor. Yeah. 
so he's obviously kind of battled against. I mean, I would not. Th- this whole debate about him and Priti Patel and Alok Shah. You know, there's been a number of people right, that's of, right. So a point in this cabinet, and I think the debate that I've been looking at, at the moment says either it goes either the way of yes, they are fully representative and it is a good thing, or no, they're bloody not. Hmm. And it can be a kind of middle ground of yes, yeah, good, you've got a black or minority ethnic person in the cabinet who happens to this point be of a Muslim background from for Sajid's perspective, but at the same time you've got to also remember that. You know, it's not just, you can have a diverse system, hmm. but it can still be unequal. Yes. You know, you could have, just because you have Hillary Clinton or Theresa May as leads of country, Hillary Clinton, if she had won, it doesn't mean misogyny, for example, and sexism are completely out of society. So just because Sajid Javid's the chancellor, doesn't mean Islamophobia is going to stop, doesn't mean, I think, there's, I mean, we'll get on to this, there's a kind of wider discussion of, yes, they're there, but the journey that took them there. Mm. The, if they're there, if Sajid's there, the message it might send to a young Pakistani Muslim son of another bus driver might be that, yeah, I can get there. But at the same time... How did you get there? How did you get there? Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point you make. So so I think you... The, let's just go still sort of stay on the point of uh, the label. Now, he's going to be labelled as a Muslim. He's going to be labelled as a Pakistani a p- person of colour, etc. Because that's why... That's how the Conservative Party want to portray him, actually. Whether he's not or not yeah, is a different matter. And he himself, on many occasions, have kind of... I guess uh, straddled all lines. Uh, you know, he he made a quote to say, "Well, the only religion that's in my household is Christianity." That's that's the way he answered the question one time. Other occasions, he's you know, he, in the elections campaign, uh, he called for a, a, you know investigation into Islamophobia. I talk about you know within the Conservative Party, uh, and I think I've seen another video clip where he actually talks. Mm. effectively on behalf of the Muslim community. He says, like, Muslim community X, Y, and Z, of which I'm a member. So um, the question actually is, is he, I, I guess it, in his own right, he's a role model, but is he, is he a role model? Is he represented, is he represented in Muslims, representing Muslims, or it's him, but he just happens to be a Muslim, really? And I think it's a lot. I think it's him, and he happens to be a Muslim. Right. Uh, because the thing is, I don't ever agree that anyone can ever represent an entire community. Sure. Yeah. You know, you'll have gender imbalances. You have different viewpoints. You have different cultural beliefs. You have different religious beliefs. You know, you could be a Sunni or a Shia or whatever. So I think that's one thing. The other thing what I'm worried about, and what I think a lot of people, a lot of British Muslims are worried about, religious or non-religious, is that there's a form of moral licensing happening where you can say, I've got a person from such and such a background. Yeah. And yeah, therefore, if that person's passing that policy, let's take the citizenship deprivations, which a lot of people have strong opinions on. People might think, well, you can't call it racist because the Home Secretary is a person of colour and he's passing this law. Well, you still can. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's a form of kind of moral licensing and that's, that's the most worrying part. And this has been done, you know, if you look at, there's a reason why people like uh, Nigel Farage mm. had hired Raheem Kassam. People yes. forget that Raheem Kassam is a person of colour, but he's one of the most right-wing people. Most toxic person you yeah, can you imagine. Yeah, you find. So the, I don't think, you know, is there a deliberate strategy in play there where he's appointed Raheem Kassam? Steve Bannon's worked with Raheem Kassam. You know, these guys have actively, in some sense, even though, uh, and the policies they advance are designed Islamophobic, yeah, yeah. To, to exclude Steve Bannon's Nigel Farage has been described as Islamophobic by some people, that basically they, the policies they bring about exclude but then they always point to the fact that, oh, but we've got such well, and such. can't be. Yeah. So it's, I, think, I think just similar to the the responses, right, that, that we got during the election campaign when the the imam asked the question about, you know, uh, uh, about Islamophobia effectively. And, and I think the response was, 
My grandfather was a Muslim, yeah, so therefore, that's a form of moral licensing. You know, <laughs> and, my children. And, oh yeah, yeah, my children. Are, well, my children are half Chinese, so therefore, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, which you know, you can. I mean, racism isn't just about Islamophobia; isn't just a personal; it's a structural problem as well, and there's mm. structural forces at play that basically suggest what his religious beliefs are, lack of that's his choice. But at the same time, the moral licensing, whether he likes it or not, that's going to happen. Mm. So he has to kind of look at that. Respect. I mean, he they, he might say that I'm not religious or whatever, but the conservative party continuously refer to him as the first kind of Muslim home secretary. So, so what, what's what's the impact of that? Do you think right on the community itself? Then they, they see somebody if they can't, if they don't know what he's like. I think a lot of people know what he's like. They don't know what he's like. They see him. They see a Muslim name. They see a person right who kind of like they can relate to. What 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 kind of what message do they take from him, and how, how does that how does does it help or hinder the, the community? I guess. I think it's a bit of both because this is the thing is what when I was saying I saw the, the, the messages earlier on some people saying no he completely doesn't represent me at the end of the day Sajid Javid no longer and he spoken about this you know was referred to as Paki growing up mm. he had that racism and no one can ever take that away from yeah, him which yeah. had, you know he had to deal with that so he obviously has a perspective in that cabinet that others don't but I think the impact that it has on people in Luton is one they might start yeah, from what I've heard from young people in my generation they probably think well do I have to be right wing to get to the top do i have to subscribe to dominant ideologies mm. to get to the top i can't dissent um and the other thing with with sajid specifically is you've got to remember that the the policies he's enacted have alienated it's fair to say a large percentage of british muslims so mm. for and also classes also you know it's not just about race if you're pakistani communities are more likely to be from working class backgrounds as with other bame communities if this was a guy and let's be honest not everyone could be a billionaire a millionaire sorry a millionaire banker Mm. And then all of a sudden go into politics, so mm. you know, and and be a Thatcherite at university. So, so the, the the other question is, do you think he's going to bat for Muslims? Uh, he's going to put the Islamophobia case forward. Uh, oh, do you but th- you know, what? I think the uh, putting a cynic's hat on here. Said Avar said to Sajid Javid, you know, you could be religious or irreligious, but you might be slightly. So the, the Conservative Party membership, according to Hope Not Hate, produced that report that came out with views that you know, over half believe this should be yeah, goes yeah. on and all this. So certainly for the membership of the party, for some, he was he had that label of being Muslim anyway. So I think then what happened was he had no choice but to come out and say, and I applaud him for that. So I think it's a good thing. But I think he also realised that he was getting, you know, take the Trump state banquet. He didn't get invited to that. So he was yeah, la- he was yeah. So, so it's quite it's quite clear what people of that persuasion, the right wing persuasion, think of him. They don't they don't care whether he's kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. a Muslim practicing Muslim. A Muslim by name, whatever we want to say to him, as far as they're concerned, there's a Muslim, full stop. End yeah. of the day. And then, like you say, you know, Shia, Sunni, whatever, whatever, uh, they don't, they're Muslim, that's it, therefore it's in the opposite camp. <clears throat> and that was a big, big slap, I would have thought, you know, there's a big slap on <laughs> his face and he just, he just didn't react to it. He just yeah. said, oh, maybe he forgot or something like that or something silly like that. No, because Muslimness is now, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a permanent feature, right? This yeah. is why it's been racialized. It's no mm-hmm. longer about religious being racialized and he's got that Muslim label. How he deals with that now? is either by continuing to push for that Islamophobia inquiry, which would be interesting to see if he does, because Boris Johnson promised and then downgraded it to a general inquiry, mm. which I think, again, just disheartened Muslims. I don't think any, most Muslims believe that it would happen. Mm. It's a bit, bit like bit like Trump and him saying <laughs> that he's going he's to resolve the Kashmir sort of uh, yeah. thing. It's like, I don't think people well, actually yeah. sort of uh, believed him. But um, so, 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 so you, you think he's going to fight the corner? You're not. You don't think he's going to fight the corner, though, Muslims? He... I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I think he will... Giving his most latest pronouncement on it by pushing for the Islamophobia and getting all of one, all of them to nod their heads in that debate, mm. some of them reluctantly, to basically nod their heads in that debate saying that, you know, I'm going to bat for it. it it'll be interesting because certainly he changed his position during the leadership contest. 
But but he th- he he did. But to be honest, he was a home secretary. He was an ideal place yeah, yeah. to deal with it at that time, and he, yeah, didn't. he didn't. He didn't. And he yeah. bought it up during the election campaign. Yeah. Well, I think he might still try and portray it as you know. If I'm totally honest, because what I'm saying is that the leadership campaign may have changed his thoughts on some things, which clearly it did when Michel Hussein asked him, "Why do you think he never got involved, invited mm. to the banquet?" He said, "I don't know," but it's clear that you know, see, it was suggested that the reason was because he, he was from Muslim background by a lot of people. So I think. When those incidents happen to him, thought maybe he does think that, you know, I've got to come out and bat against this because I suffer from the same discrimination. It's like, for example, right, I'll give you an example. Members of the Sikh community, mm. when they get attacked on the streets, which some of them do for attacking, for being perceived to be Muslim, they turn around and say, well, and it's a really powerful message. The answer isn't to say I'm not Muslim because then that makes it sound as though it's okay to do it to a Muslim. Mm. You know, they could turn around and say, but I'm not Muslim. Why, why are you attacking me? Or the same way in which a Jewish philosopher, Hannah Arant, so that if you're attacked as a Jew, you defend yourself as a Jew. M- meaning that, you know, that you either, because if you don't, you throw the other people under the bus. And I hope he comes to that conclusion that basically if you're attacked as a Muslim, you defend yourself as a Muslim. You don't say, oh, but I'm not this X, Y, and Z, which makes it seem as though it's okay to do it to another person. Mm. So I actually, uh, to be honest, I think uh, if you're, you're 100% sort of fair, uh, getting to that position of, of being appointed a chancellor is, is no, I mean, no small thing. No small achievement, and I think that 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 is an inspiration. I guess some people draw from from that, wouldn't it? From the oh yeah, I mean, but, as British Pakistanis, you know, the, the report came out three weeks with the lowest paid when it comes to ONS. We suffer a lot mm. of discrimination in the jobs market, but British Bangladesh and Pakistan. So he's obviously had that had to contend with that barrier. I don't take anything away from him. The question on Islamophobia, though, that's that's a kind of complete. This that's more class focused. Whereas mm. when it comes to Islamophobia, that's more him and the role he plays. You can't really change your class or where you kind of come from or your race, mm. but how you respond to Islamophobia is now in his court and I just hope he does it in a positive way. But mm. but my big fear, like I said, is that I don't want certain policies or ideas to become legitimized. The idea that you could call Muslim women bank robbers and letterboxes and then Hope Not Hate again recorded a specific within that week hate crimes against Muslim women going up. Mm. And then him turn around and say, but I can't be Islamophobic because I've got a Muslim chancellor. Mm. And uh, what would the Muslim Chancellor say on, on that happens to be honest? And that's, that that, yeah, that's the question. But I, I mean, pre, before you came along, Muhammad Amin was saying that he, he, and I'm talking about uh, Boris Johnson, he will, he will say things uh, just to get the desired effect. It doesn't matter mm. what, he, what, what he believes or doesn't believe. Uh, and Amin's position was that he doesn't think Boris Johnson is Islamophobic, but he's, he's, he's quite happy to pay, play along with it. Um, and that, that's disturbing in, in a sense, really, because I think all, what you're saying is, is that uh, uh, it's okay to do that as long as he gets the results at the end of the day. Yeah, right, which is which is what, and, and the conversation I've had with Mohammed Amin previously about this is that in many ways it's worse hmm. because uh, with, it's terrible that people are Islamophobic, yet some of them do it out of a false belief or conviction in a false ideology, which at least you can have a debate. Hmm. But with Boris, it seems though he's willing to switch his position. It was not just with Islamophobia. One minute he was for leave, the next minute he was for remain, then he kept flip-flopping. So, And that's worse because that just shows that the only person that matters is the career and the ambition. And you're willing that you see this community as a form of capital. Yeah, that you can use to... You can use to increase your electoral advantage. And I think he's taken that. He met up with Steve Bannon. There's no, there's, mm. That's a fact. And Steve Bannon is the far-right parties across Europe mm. who have come to the conclusion that if you bash Muslims, it's a vote winner. Mm. They were seen as a capital in, a form of, in the world of politics, which... That's that's an interesting point you you actually raised, yeah. Because, um, and I think it's an inter- interesting point that Mom and Amin raises as well. Uh, the lot of these, these 
people who are very pro-Brexit, etc., they have deliberately chosen this platform of Islamophobia in order to achieve the Brexit uh, uh, objective. Mm. The objective isn't necessarily uh, to actually be Islamophobic, but it's a means to an end, right? And they're they're willing to sort of you know step over Muslims in order to sort of achieve that, and that that's that's quite a disturbing sort of uh, yeah. a view. And it's happened to other communities, you know, whether it was the Jewish community before, where they're looking someone to blame on the economic downturn. It just so happens it's Muslims. And Turkey, the whole example of Turkey, you know, Muslims joining Europe, mm. <laughs> which is how it's portrayed, and hordes of Muslims coming over, refugees. It was, well, it was actually Boris Johnson who actually yeah. did that. Yeah. And he has Turkish <laughs> yeah. Turkish yeah. roots, I guess. I think his great-grandfather was, was Turk. Well, his cousins in the Turkish village today I wrote about, they, they, they've asked him to come over to visit. Right. Uh, okay. So <laughs> yes. So maybe that will sort of uh, convince him to to tone down his uh, uh, his Islamophobic sort of uh, well comments that he's made at least anyway. Whether he's Islamophobic or not, I think I can't judge. We can't judge. But uh, some of his actions point towards that way at least anyway. Right. Um, and it does sound a bit odd, right? The fact that somebody who's got even an arm's length connection with Islam and Muslims can be quite blatant and write about Islam in, in those sort of disparaging ways, but uh, that's where we are. Um, so so do, you, do you actually do you think, um, I, I guess, um, now that, you know, we're heading towards Brexit and Brexit happens and Britain's out of, of Europe, etc. Uh, do you think if, if it was a case of Islamophobia being used as a stepping stone to achieve that objective, uh, past October things will die down? The fact that they will... Or is this a is this a separate industry that's been created as a yeah, byproduct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a brilliant book by Nathan Lee called Islamophobia Industry. Mm. It's a multi-billion-dollar people. I mean, yeah. this is one of the, there's so many facets to Islamophobia. It's not just about women's skulls being pulled off in the streets, Muslim women getting attacked, and men getting attacked. Mm. There's financial interest behind it. Absolutely, absolutely. And people don't really look at that. Tommy Robinson was being funded by the Middle East Forum in Amer- all the way in America. Mm. You know, the other Pamela Gellner, or Gellner, is it? Gellner, she's, yeah, she, she's made millions, millions out of this industry. Mm. And Tommy Robson, there's a spect- in the Spectator article where he was saying, well, someone going to get £4,000 a month from. Mm. Mm. So sometimes some, some of these guys don't even believe what they're saying. They're just doing it for the money. The, they're, 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 they're paid campaigners. Yeah. Really, they're professional campaigners. But on your question of is it going to continue? Yeah, of course. Because at the end of the day, Islamophobia... Has been, so Edward Said and they used to talk about Orientalism, you know, the way the Middle East was viewed, even... Before 9-11, these are barbaric, backward people and all of this. And then after that, it got worse. Um, and steadily, it's got worse. This is this has been growing it's structural, right? And it's not going to go away just because the Brexit vote's been won. Mm. We're still going to be, what I feel, the kind of community you can whip uh, to basically, for a lot of society's ills or the integration of debate that's been going on from Dame Louise Casey. So, the, so there'll be a next challenge, you reckon? There'll be a next challenge, right, yeah, which will use this platform... Uh, to yeah, actually course. progress their objective, their of objective, course. yeah, yeah. Because if if you look at let's just say something happens, uh, there's another economic recession after Brexit, which has been predicted. We know that when there's an economic downturn, people have scapegoats to blame, and somehow yeah. <laughs> somehow the Muslim community is going to end up getting blamed for lots of things. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to sort of uh, recant or uh, uh, a comment that, that somebody made to me many years ago. So this is this is probably beyond your time, <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> Uh, as as you might write, I mean, I grew up right in the National Front days and and extremists and thugs and packy bashing and, and those days, mm-hmm. uh, and I felt it and, and I kind of experienced it as well. 
Uh, and I was having a conversation with somebody, and I think this is when Thatcher was elected, basically, right? Uh, in I think early nineties, uh, uh, early eighties. Um, the comment that this this person made was that fact that things are going to calm down now because the 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 money that was trickling down to the bother boys, right, is now going to dry up because they've achieved their objective. They managed to get a government right which has that kind of view, basically, towards ethnic minorities and and immigrants and whatever. Do you think that's the case as well now? The fact that you've got now somebody who's got this extreme Brexit sort of uh, viewpoint, somebody who's got, you know, allegedly at least anywhere, is an Islamophobic viewpoint. Now that he's in power, some of those who actually use Islamophobia as, as a stepping stone are going to find that the money's going to dry up a little bit because they've achieved their objective. objective. No, no, because again, I think Islamophobia, there's just kind of been this, the idea that's been pushed, the clash of civilizations theory. But the money might dry up because the objective has been achieved, would you say? Not really. I think basically the policing of Muslim communities, the way kind of extremism programs work, do you think that's going to, that started before Brexit? Mm. That's going to continue after Brexit. You know, when legitimate dissent, uh, whether it be criticism of state policies, it could be anything, foreign policy, domestic policy, when that's seen as policed through the lens of counter-terrorism, when, when you've got so much talent within Muslim communities when it comes to football or the creative arts or industry, and then the only way the government can relate to Muslim communities for that is through counter-extremism programs. Mm. And people find out it's got prevent funding and they want nothing to do with it. Mm. I think that whole nexus is going to continue. You know, there's a book, What is Islamophobia? Uh, that was written by a number of academics that basically it's not just about this idea of Islamophobia is seen as uh, approach from the top down, but it's also kind of bottom up, what's happening at the grassroots. Mm. It's not just about government, it's also about, you know, in the film industry, you know, are they going to carry on making movies like, or so, shows like Bodyguard, where basically people get entertained of the idea that Muslims are barbaric, mm. and, you know, they're, they're making money out of this idea that we're under attack from, from a particular community. That kind of whole industry, I don't think that's going to stop. Mm. But the money for that is still going to continue, I think. Right, okay, so you don't think this is a phase? Okay, let, let's go back to, to Sajid Javid again. I think we're talking about him in particular, I guess, and he's being appointed uh, as a chancellor. Uh, I, I guess, you know, he's, um, he's not brought his family into the, into the limelight, and, and he's not brought, I guess, what has come to the limelight is that he's, uh, he's an ardent supporter of Israel. And he, uh, before his appointment as a chancellor last week, and during, I guess, just past, I guess, his uh, departure from the uh, leadership race, he, he, he went and went to the Holy Land, and also mm. Israel as well, and they met with Netanyahu and, and etc. Um, how much of that do you reckon, right, is, has actually helped him propel up the, I guess, the ladder? The fact that there is a, there is a powerful lobby that's kind of supporting him. What I don't support is the idea that Israel's got a powerful lobby, because I think that does link into anti-Semitic tropes that Jewish people exert a lot of influence or power and that's been going on for centuries oh, but there, there was an Al Jazeera um, yeah. documentary yeah, yeah, which yeah, said yeah, some, there, were, there, were, there were people who were trying yeah. to influence the British I, I, I basically the way I see it is when the UN have condemned Israeli illegal settlements mm. when human rights groups have condemned illegal Israeli settlements um, and they've accused them of human rights violations I think he came out with a specific statement mm. which kind of struck me was that basically you know, it was one of the greatest democracies in the world for children to grow up in, well, mm. not by the UN standards, not by human rights standards. Yeah. So I don't think it, I don't think, what, I think what Sajid, what he's trying to, I mean, I, again, I'm trying to put, I don't want to think too much about what he thinks, but it's clear that in his opinion, he, the way he's trying to, he's trying to get everybody on board, right? And I remember there was a, 
quote even I read growing up, a religious quote that said, if you, you know, if you please everybody, you're a hypocrite. Mm. You can't because different people are pleased by different things. And so is, that, is that what he's trying to do? He's trying to appease diff- please different people. Please. So why hasn't he come out right and openly and said, right, white Muslims, you're my community, right? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of, um, you know, back for you, and I'm gonna. Why? Why, why has he not done that? Why has he not come to the Muslim community and visited a few well, mosques, yeah. visited a few mosques, right? And and um, and and said, you know, did whatever he did, I guess, in, in Israel. There's a point I was just was going out of my mind. I mean, he has visited mosques, but at the same time, I think what he's done is, if you look, for example, on where he, where a grooming gang or yeah. a paedophile has been uh, arrested and sentenced, right? And that's disgusting. And they've been sentenced. He chose, right? That was his choice. And this is essentially he chose to specifically mention the race of the offenders if mm. when they were Asian. And it wasn't a lot of white people came out. A lot of you know BME people came out and said, "Why haven't you never mentioned the race of others?" Yeah. Others. So I think what's happening in Sajid, and again, in the world of politics, like you mentioned earlier on Boris Johnson, this Machiavellian approach that basically mm. is all about electoral, you know, you're thinking electorally in your head, right? That you're thinking... Which is going to win What's going to mean, yeah. And let's be honest. And that's not a, that's not a good... Because I, I, remember, I remember growing up uh, and politicians used to be about substance, right? And I'm not saying they were the good old days, but at least you, you knew where the politicians stood. If they were kind of like socialist, right? You knew they were socialist, right? Because they had particular viewpoint and that. Now you're getting a politician, right? Which is saying, "Well, before I open my mouth, uh, which is going to get me the most votes, and I'll, I'll, I'll basically yeah. jump on that particular bandwagon." Yeah, because we're living in a populism, populist populist era. Populist era, and that's that's what they do, right? Because principles go out the window. Because the, the hardest part in these times is to stick to certain principles and say, "No, you know what? If it does cost me electoral victory." then fine, I'm going to stick on this principle. And people, I think people still respect that. Hmm. But unfortunately, for in this filter bubble world where people just see the news mostly on Facebook, hmm. basically, you know, thinking in your head, well, what's going to get me more votes? You know, It's a transactional relationship. Yeah, but look at this campaign against Sadiq Khan. I mean, again, this was um, Boris, obviously, okay, he'd left, and then Zach Goldsmith came along. Hmm. The campaign he ran. I can't believe what he said. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, that was all about trying to scare people. Hmm. Anyway, Jazakallah, thank you very much, Basit, for coming along today and then having a, a decent discussion on Sajid Javid and his, uh, I guess, uh, role as a role model, I guess I would say. Jazakallah, uh, thank you very much. We're going to, listeners, we're going to move on to another topic after this short break. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live. You're listening to me, Zafar Iqbal, uh, and we were talking about uh, the appointment of Sajid Javid as a Chancellor. What does that mean for Muslims? What does that mean for diversity and inclusivity? Uh, and I think there's been mixed messages. There were actually mixed kind of views, I guess. Uh, Basit, uh, a journalist from the Metro, has given his views in the sense that he... Um, the messages he sends are complex, at least anyway. Uh, whether he's a role model for the Muslims, whether it'll stick up for the Muslims, whether he's in it for himself, um, uh, we don't know. We don't know. And I think one thing that, that perhaps came out in the discussion is that a lot of politicians, I guess, including Sajid Javid, um, 
they would say things and do things which will uh, basically make them progress up the political and uh, electoral agenda rather than necessarily having a particular um particularly sort of um uh, i guess uh, uh opposition on on an issue right okay so we're going to move on to our next topic of discussion um we know we we've we've kind of talked about um you know uh america and uh, donald trump as having a particular view again about muslims um but this week he basically entertained a leader of the Muslim world who's quite respected, I guess, in, in many quarters. Uh, he's a famous cricketer, Imran Khan. He's now the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Uh, and he went there for three days. Uh, and, and he met with Donald Trump. And and apparently they had a, a quite a warm discussion, warm sort of a, a, a discussion in which, in which uh, quite a few topics, items of discussion uh, were talked about, including the fact that Trump was quite prepared to uh, mediate between India and Pakistan over the Kashmir issue, uh, which India denied immediately. Uh, but I guess all of this media attention uh, he got, uh, and I guess in, in many Pakistanis, from many Pakistanis' point of view, the welcome he got in, in America was, was good. Uh, not only from the Pakistanis there, I think he was greeted by some like 3,000 people, right, in a stadium where he made uh, a, a number of speeches, etc. Uh, but also, I guess, across the spectrum from the political uh, structure of uh, the American society, who was, who was basically uh, welcomed and had discussions and, and uh, uh, press sort of conferences with, with a lot of these. Um, but that overlooked the fundamental question, is that if, if the premise is that uh, Donald Trump is racist and Islamophobic, and leading up to his visit, he was entangled in an exchange with, an, you know, a Muslim at least anyway, in a, in a group of ethnic minority sort of uh, representatives uh, in in uh, uh, in the Congress. Um, however, all of that disappeared when Imran Khan walked in. So what was going on? Should Imran Khan have gone to America? Should he have actually met with Donald Trump? Uh, we still, I've still got Basit Mahmoud, who's a journalist from the Metro, uh, here with me. Basit, what, what's your thought? Should he have gone? And if not, why not? No, 100% no. And, and the thing is, people, you know what? So the, the way the discussion has happened is that, oh, you don't understand, this is the world of politics. Even, even young Muslim friends are saying, you know, he, he has to have gone, you know, you don't understand, this is politics. I get that part, right? But I think history will judge those. History will look very unkindly on those who dealt with a man who's racist. Openly racist, and one of the stupidest leaders the world's ever seen. In the sense that Imran Khan went, and I think there's a pattern of behaviour here where it didn't surprise me. Imran Khan went. Mm. People were, some people were shocked. Oh, Imran Khan went to Donald Trump. No, not really, because if you look at his answers they gave about the Uyghur Muslims in China, mm. and he was asked, I can't remember who it was, a CNN or BBC, that basically they asked him, over oh, what about the Uyghur Muslims in China? You've got this CPEC happening, and again we were talking earlier on about politics and principles and electioneering that basically. CPEC, and you say, I don't know about the Uyghurs. Mm. How can you say you don't know when it's happening in your doorstep? China is right near you, and you don't know what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims. Mm. So I think, so it didn't surprise you. So having said that, then he went to Donald Trump and met up with Donald Trump. So he's happy, he's trying to keep China on side, then he went to see Donald Trump, and yeah, definitely, you can't. how can you meet someone who's openly attacking Ilhan Omar? Do, do you think that issue, I mean, that's not an isolated issue, where a black Muslim woman 
Mm. We haven't even reached the fact that there's racism within aspects of Muslim communities against black people. And mm. what happened was a black Muslim woman who's being attacked relentlessly by this man. It's not coincidence he's targeted her and Sadiq Khan most. And he turns out and says, you know, she's married to her brother and she's Al-Qaeda and all of this. Mm. And Imran Khan goes over there and meets him. Why? Like, I get that, you know, his whole campaign pledge was, we don't need nobody, we don't need nobody's aid. You know, we're going to stand on our own two feet. And you still went there. For what? And it, and look at the way he greeted him. He spoke, he could, I could kill X amount of millions of Afghans, get Afghans if I wanted to, but I don't really want to kill people. Who makes that kind of comment? Mm. Mm. The thing is, uh, if you look at the position of Pakistan, it's not it's not exactly in a position to to a kind of uh, command a different viewpoint, though, is it? it? It's kind of struggling along. Uh, it's in a difficult position uh, as far as the economy is concerned. So it's really a question of why there's a set of priorities. My first priority is to get my house in order. I'll think about the, the global position, the global Muslim position later. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that a justification? No, I think too inextricably linked. When you're thinking about your house in order, your house has been burnt to the ground. Mm. By the guy you're trying to, you know, Trump accused Pakistan of playing a double game, even though people usually seem to forget this this inconvenient fact for them, which is that Pakistan's played one of the highest prices when it comes mm. to the foreign terror. We lost one of the biggest massacres of school children, mm. you know, in, in the Peshawar school attack. Mm. You know, we've lost thousands of civilians to suicide bombings. And then on top of that, the drone strikes as well. Mm. You know, people make this contrast between Malala and those other school children that were killed and the Obama's drone strikes. So when that mm. happened, what about those children, those girls whose schools were bombed, who can't mm. go to school anymore, who've lost their parents? Mm. But the, sorry, go ahead. So, but the, these things happen in you know during the tenure of the previous administration, and I think mm. our leaders were quite happy to meet Obama. But what, why, why a difference? Because he's the head of, he's the head of a country, really. He's a president of the United States, right? Uh, and if you want things done, you have to deal with him. Yeah, there's one thing meeting him bilateral. When there's a, like a you know a UN meeting happening or something, it's quite another going there and basically playing laptop, which no one. That's a strong playing a laptop. That's a good one. So uh, I'm going to welcome Ali uh, Mustafa. He's a presenter for the Straight Talk on TRT World. Salam alaikum, uh, Ali Mustafa. Waalaikum salam. Uh, shukriya, jazakallah for for joining me today. Uh, uh, we're talking today about Imran Khan's visit to the United States. Uh, I've got with me Basit Mahmood, who's a journalist who writes uh, for the Metro. Uh, and uh, he was basically expressing his view that, that uh, Imran Khan shouldn't have gone to America because he actually shook hands with somebody who's Islamophobe, somebody who's racist. What's your view? Well, there is definitely that, that the visit, Imran Khan's visit to the United States comes at a time when Donald Trump is, for all intents and purposes, a bigoted racist mm. going after uh, women of color, for example, in the U.S. Congress. But on the other hand, keeping in view the context of Pakistan's traditional transactional relationship with the United States, mm. these things uh, at that level shouldn't really matter. Right. Uh, you're talking about Donald Trump as being a bigot, Barack Obama, in his final year of his presidency, dropped 29,000 bombs. Mm. According to the Pentagon's own assessment, one bomb killed three individuals. Yeah. So you're talking about 90,000, 99,000 people that were killed in Obama's final year of his presidency. Mm. So these things are semantics. Mm. The way 
politics and international relations work, well, you have to meet meet people that you don't necessarily see eye to eye with. Hmm. So, so I think for you're talking about it from from a I guess a uh, a diplomatic perspective that that there are occasions where when you have to meet nasty people, and I guess that probably was the case during Hitler as well. Because I think he met Chamberlain, didn't he? Met with Chamberlain and and had a discussion with him. Uh, I think history judged him afterwards. Um, but during that time, uh, he did uh, stretch a hand out. Well, you've got other examples of, as well. You've got Mao Zedong, Nixon going to China to meet Mao Zedong, a man who, who by some estimates, was responsible for the, for the deaths of 45 million people. Well. But pulling back to, pulling back to uh, Pakistan and Imran Khan, and you have to look at it in terms of where Pakistan is mm. at this current point in time. There are a lot of similarities, actually, if you pull back and look at what was happening in the late 80s with Afghanistan, Pakistan, the United States, and the Soviets to what's happening in Afghanistan today. Mm -hmm. I, I feel, uh, from my limited analysis, that the United States and Pakistan are at the same crossroads today in 2019 as they were at the, on the eve of the Soviet withdrawal. And as that event unleashed, horrors in Afghanistan, so too does this event have potential with the withdrawal of the Americans. Okay, what, what, what are you alluding to? Well, once the Soviets left um, Afghanistan, the various factions in Afghanistan, most of whom were backed by the Pakistani oh. military establishment, got down to a civil war. Mm -hmm. So, so you, uh, you think... We're talking about... Yeah, go on. Yeah, so, so what you're saying basically is that, that uh, uh, a withdrawal now of American troops from there is going to lead Afghanistan into a, uh, an abyss as it did after the Soviet withdrawal. Uh, because, uh, but the things, I think Pakistan is trying, I guess, isn't it, to make this withdrawal a little bit more orderly. So, so having an engagement right, with the different parties, and I think Russia has been involved in the discussions, China has. And I guess in some respect, I think Iran has been, been taken on board as well. So, uh, so I guess that that's the case. But but what going back to the to the visit to, to the U.S. Do you think that this particular visit would have uh, would have actually uh, in some ways bettered that situation? In terms of pure optics, yes, mm. one can make an argument that in terms of pure optics, Trump meeting Imran. The kind of conversation that ensued, the reaction from India, the comments that were made on Afghanistan, yes, in a zero-sum game, purely based on optics, this was a successful visit, or can be construed in terms of a successful visit. But if you're looking at the broader context, hmm. what are they trying to achieve? Hmm. They're trying to achieve an end to the longest-running war yes. that the Americans have ever fought. It's even longer than the Spanish war, the, the, the U.S.-Spanish war. Mm. You're talking about uh, Pakistan, which is in a very precarious situation economically. A Pakistan which has been increasingly isolated by this visit from, by Imran Khan to the White House. So there is a desperate urge in Pakistan to find some sort of relevance again. And with this visit by Imran Khan to the White House, they see an opening. What this opening amounts to, well, that comes down to Mr. Trump's personality and his ability to keep to his word. 
Sure. Okay, so, Bastet, I think you're shaking your head there. No, you disagree. No, I totally disagree. Because the thing is, okay, I mean, North Korea <clears throat> saw an opening. Lots of countries have seen an opening with Trump, and nothing's really come of it, firstly. And secondly, you said you mentioned optics, and I think that's a key word, right? If you're saying for the purposes of just symbolism, the purposes of just for theatre, this was a good visit, oh my God, look. I mean, Kim Jong-un done the same thing. Oh my God, look, I met Trump. For me, it's a massive win. I got him to the negotiating table. Imran Khan goes over, you know, we're negotiating with America. You, you, you mentioned the 1980s, right? Why is it? That you mentioned the precarious situation Pakistan finds itself in. The reason why we find Pakistan finds itself in that precarious situation is because for decades it's relied on America. The IMF, for example, these institutions that are global, the IMF is as strong as, as, as America. It's basically backed and funded by the American government. And, and the truth is, you know, you're, you're taking out IMF loans after IMF loans. So you're saying in the 90s, I totally agree. It's, it's similar because overall the structure of the thing hasn't changed because we're still relying on America, which isn't a fear with a friend, you know, one minute Pakistan's with them on the war on terror and the next minute Pakistan's been accused of playing a two-double-sided mm. game. Pakistan's also paying the heaviest of prices in the region. And can I just say, you mentioned Obama. Of course, look, Obama deported more people than any president, president in American history. Now, that doesn't mean to say just because I criticize Trump, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-Obama. The thing is, though, with Obama, he didn't refer to countries, and excuse my language, as shithole countries. Mm. You know, he didn't turn around and say, I want to put specifically in the words, Muslim ban. You know, you talked about symbolism. That symbolism matters too. He talks about a Muslim ban. He speaks about shithole countries. He targets uh, innocent people in Congress saying that they're linked to Al-Qaeda. So if you think you're going to get anything from Trump, Trump's a businessman, right? You know, business and politics are two very separate things. You have to compromise in the world of politics. Trump, there's a brilliant book by Naomi Klein, uh, right, that's called Shock Doctrine and No Logo, that basically he sees this all as a business transaction. You can't see the Kashmir issue as a business transaction. And, and I think, like as I was saying, I think history will judge very unkindly leaders that went and, and batted for Trump and then made him to be some sort of impartial. Uh, do you really think he's going to be, you know, you said, oh, India, do you really think he's going to be an impartial media between two countries when already he's talking about Muslim bans and he's talking about shithole countries and you think he's going to be an impartial yeah, I, I think we have to be careful using that term, to be honest. I'm not sure we can say that on the air. But anyway, uh, I've, I've got, uh, I've also got um, uh, basically a representative of the PTI, uh, Asad Mahmoud, he's a regular sort of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, um, a correspondent, I guess, on the this, on this show. Uh, Asad, uh, you heard the comments. Uh, it was a mistake. He yeah. shouldn't have gone to America. Um, why should he not have gone, from your point of view? Sure. I mean, first of all, I actually disagree with that, why he shouldn't have gone. I think it's the other way around, why he should have gone. Okay. So, this basically, uh, the party looks at him four different ways. So number one, we wanted to develop a personal relationship. So for example, if you look at the past one year that uh, Imran Khan has come into power, he's developed close relationships with some of our key players. So we've got Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Um, but they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not all very, uh, they're not held in very positive light, all of these. Uh, Putin, um, MBS, uh, Trump. So I'm not sure that that's, a, po that's a positive country, thing. Sure. So every country has to protect their own interests. Sure. So Mr. Imran Khan, when he went there, he had to represent Pakistan's interests. So number one, he wanted to have that personal relationship. So Mr. Trump can now pick up the phone and says to Mr. Imran Khan, um, actually, this is what's happened. You came and you said this, 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 but something else has happened. So there's a direct relationship established, whereas before it wasn't. It was like a Cold War words. We saw the Twitter exchange. So number one, the, in terms of optics, we want the personal relationship. Number two. But why, why would you? I mean, that's quite disturbing. Why, why would you want a personal relationship with somebody who's, who's been, I, I guess, at least made comments 
which are very Islamophobic. Why would you want a personal relationship with that? I get, I, I get the point uh, that that Ali Mustafa has made that this is this is kind of like a, a state level. He's the head of, of the United States. He's the president of the United States. So therefore, there is that that need. There's a relationship need for a relationship, but personal one. That that that's kind of is that disturbing? Personal relationship in terms of protecting the interest of the country. So he's representing the interest of America. Let's not forget. In Afghanistan, USA has been there for 19 years. Obviously, they need an exit plan out. They didn't have one, and Imran Khan had been saying, you know, let's get out of the war, and we would help you. The reason for that person, I guess, the, the thing is, uh, Mr. Trump still has, you know, obviously the president of America. So having that, I guess, personal connection is that he can bypass the administration like the different lobbyists. This visit, coincidentally, wouldn't have come so early had it not been the personal relations that Mr. Khan developed in little under a year with MBS and other Arab countries, Turkey, Malaysia, UAE, Qatar, um, this wouldn't have visit wouldn't have happened because of our, our Arab friends, which you just said that always oh, doesn't look in a positive light. Places. Every country has to protect our interests. So number one was this a strong personal relation, a direct communication. What I mean by personal relation, a direct communication channel has now opened up between Imran Khan and Trump, at least the senior leadership of Trump. Number two, in three days that he was there, he's actually literally changed the perception of um, of, of Pakistan in, in America. So, for example, if you saw the Congress um, media briefing, if you saw the media briefing with Mr. Trump, if you also saw his Fox interview, and as well as his think tank in Peace he's actually literally changed the perception. He's been honest, he's been upfront, put up his hand, yes, we made some mistakes, however, you also made some mistakes. Right. So number two, he changed the perception. And lastly, there was a question that was asked to him, um, would you resume the aid? Now, there was a question asked by some journalists in the, uh, the meeting, and Trump hinted towards that, yes, you know, we might do that, blah, blah, blah. Don't forget, um, according to the Coalition Sport Fund, they owe us $9 billion, um, mm. So we do need that money. So Okay. All right. Let, let, let me put, let me put a, a question to Ali Mustafa. Uh, Ali, uh, so a lot of the things that have been talked about could they not have been achieved through a phone call or something like that private phone call um, You know have a conversation the world didn't need to know about it um, And and you know, what does it matter whether you have a personal chemistry or not between the president etc? It is it is important, but I think we need to be careful here We need to look at the nature of the Pakistan US relationship yeah. throughout history since the 1950s this relationship, even to this day, is a transactional relationship. Sure, yeah, what yeah. do we mean by that? Well, in 1950s, 60s, Pakistan was a bulwark against the Soviet expansion. Yeah, That changed, well, that continued into Afghanistan with the Soviets moving in. Then 9-11 happened. Then Pakistan's army became an army for hire as part of the global war on terror, something for which they were paid in coalition support funds, mm. 13 billion of which went unaccounted for. Mm. Then they tried to start a civilian route for the Kerry Luger Berman legislation. So it's not something that is happening in a vacuum. It's not something, and perceptions, mind you, are, are quite fickle. Mm. You can have a personal relationship to, put to, uh, to forward your statecraft, but if, at the end of the day, if you are not delivering on both sides, perceptions can change very, very quickly. And unless this relationship changes from a transactional to a multilateral relationship, you will be back at these crossroads mm. over and over again. Because keep in mind, the Americans leave, what happens then? 
does Pakistan continue to use its proxies or that proxy mentality despite what Prime Minister Khan is saying? And also keep in mind, accompanying Prime Minister Imran Khan was the chief of the Pakistan army, General Bajwa. Mm. He had his own set of meetings. So it's not just Imran Khan meeting Donald Trump. This carries the weight of 70 years of a transactional relationship that has that is cyclical in a lot of ways. Mm. So, so if if it is like you're saying uh, a transactional relationship, do you think that that this visit, um, in a sense, uh, was was about playing to the ego uh, of uh, Imran Khan to make that transactional more in favour of the United States? Uh, not really. <laughs> so, Ali, Ali, for you first, go on, please. Go on, please. No, no, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, not necessarily. Mm. Keep in mind, this the meeting at this point in time is to complete a transaction. Mm. So it's a continuation. What is the transaction? Well, the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, the incorporation or integration of the of the Afghan Taliban as a political entity, yeah. so that violence subsides. And Pakistan says it's inter-aligned with a peaceful Afghanistan because a peaceful Afghanistan means a peaceful. In yeah. theory, in words, this sounds wonderful, but the reality, when it comes down, will a winning side, you have seen in the past 30 days more attacks in Kabul, in eastern Afghanistan than you have in the past six months. Hmm. As you are nearing remarkable progress, according to Zalmi Khalilza, the U.S. representative for Afghanistan, yeah. so you've got a lot of these moving parts. And just to base our conclusions on this perception or this successful perception of a of a visit, I think um, it will be a fallacy. Right. Okay. So, Asad, you you were saying you were going to make a point. No, I mean, look. At the end of the day, each country. So, I mean, transactional relationship can also be looked at as protecting one's interest. So, every country has their own interest. America has an interest. They want to say thanks there. Pakistan has an interest. So, for example, what did we let's, what did we actually achieve from this visit? Or what did Mr. Khan's three-day visit actually achieve? So, like I was saying, yes, there's a, a personal, I guess you can say direct communication. Let's know, okay, we'll remove the person. Direct communication channels have been opened up mm. with the top leadership of uh, Trump. That wasn't the case. Mm. I mean, when, when Mr. Nawaz Sharif and all these previous government ones when you can see the difference. So, for example, all these previous governments, uh, Nawaz Sharif, um, his predecessors, they went there for exactly that transactional relationship. So, Mr. Khan didn't talk about aid. In, in fact, he cursed it. Mm. If you listen to him, he said, no, we, I didn't come here for that. I came here for mutual respect. I came to put my point of view across on Afghanistan, having peace. If you listen to Mr. Trump, he said, um, if I wanted to, I would bomb in a week and I would kill 100 million people or what, whatever he said. I mean, it was just nonsense anyway, but he was... But how, how, could, how, could, he, how could he take that? Because, you know, he's a Pashtun, right? Uh, and, and you've got Afghan, you know, a lot, a, lot, a lot of Afghanis are Pashtuns as well. And to hear that from somebody to say, well, I, I could have just pressed a button and killed 10 million of them. How could he have just gone there and listened to that? Well, he, I mean, you have to take into context, he did complete his sentence. But he said, but I don't want to do that. And then he completed it. But it doesn't saying, matter what the sentence is. He, he, said, he said what he said, right? And that's not a... That's his reflection. That's a reflection of his character, his personality. So, so, to, so to, the point, to the point exactly, which is that, yes, uh, you know, at a, a state level, 
right? There, there needs to be a discussion. There needs to be kind of like communication between Pakistan and, and uh, America. But does it need to have this discussion uh, on a one-to-one level with somebody, right, who's unpredictable like that? Well, at the end of the day, again, I come back to the point that Mr. Imran Khan, he represented Pakistan and he went there with specific goals in mind, number one, to clear the air, you know, the misunderstanding, the educating the people, or, you know, especially the Trump administration. Let's not forget the Indian lobby, second behind Israeli lobby, extremely um, how should I say, uh, powerful in, in terms of resources, especially financial resources, the amount of effort they put in lobbying, that has to be counteracted, which is the reason why over the year we had negative statements coming out from Trump. Right. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a short break break now, uh, Asad. Yeah, sure. uh, Ali, Ali and Asad, are you, are you happy to stay behind for another maybe five minutes or so after the break? We'll just wrap up and, and finish after the break? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, listeners, uh, stay tuned. Inshallah, we'll be back after the break and we'll continue with this, uh, with this discussion. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to Spy FM. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. You're listening to Friday Night Live on Spy FM 105.1 FM. Uh, we were discussing uh, the visit, Imran Khan's visit to the United States. Uh, we have on the line Ali Mustafa, who is the presenter of Straight Talk on TRT World. Uh, we also have Asad Mahmood, uh, who is from the office of the international chapter of the PTI, the Pakistani Tariqe uh, Insaf, Imran Khan's party. Uh, and in the studio is Basit Mahmood, who's a journalist uh, for the Metro. Uh, we were talking about the fact that... Um, just before the break, we were talking about whether a personal relationship uh, is necessary in order to get a transactional relationship forward. Uh, the, the responses that, that we've had so far, I guess uh, from Ali uh, and Asad, is that uh, it's part and parcel of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, progressing uh, a transactional relationship. Uh, but uh, Bassett has a slightly different view. Bassett, you, you think uh, you have to be absolutist in terms of having relationships no. with people who have a, uh, have a particular particular standing i guess yeah i mean the thing is right trump these guys have both admitted both of them admitted that he's yeah. a he's a racist and to some extent a white supremacist both of them admitted that yeah the more you do this transactional business the yeah. more you end up legitimizing his views whether you like it or not you say no i don't support those views but the more you sit down with him the more you entertain him the more you you interact with him you end up legitimizing those kind of ideologies right secondly i think i said you said that but I, I can't believe you said that that basically the 10 million, he, he, he said he could kill 10 million or how many millions it was in Afghanistan, but he doesn't want to. You said there's context behind that. The truth is this, right? He was implying a threat of force, right? I don't want to, I want to, it's down in my hands. That's what he's basically saying. And for you to say that that should be taken into context, I, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's a wrong take on it. Because I think he's trying to imply the threat of violence and he's made that, he's threatening North Korea and all these countries, right? We know he's not fully kind of, even his own military don't think they've, you know, they, in the White House, in that book that was written, Fire and Fuse, they... They say we're not going to do that. Whatever he just said, whatever behind his back, they say we're not going to do that because they realise the danger of what this man is. And for you to play it down by saying all oh, this context, I think I think that's very wrong. And thirdly, just lastly, you guys raised the point of there being you know national interest, state interest, right? Well, I thought that that statecraft ideology, real politics, was of the 1930s and 40s. But now we're going back into that because the truth is there's universal values as well, and that was the whole point of the League of Nations, the human rights, the UN, the <laughs> idea that you know there, there are universal human rights too right and the more you are willing to upend those and the more you're willing to do away with them just for the sake of statecraft which we know now that sovereignty is no longer absolute 
America's made that clear. The West has made that clear, you know, with Gaddafi and Saddam, that basically you have to respect certain human rights. So I think it's funny. So what, the last point I just want to quickly make is that Britain, which has a far closer relationship, which you'd both surely accept with America. For example, this speaker, John Burkow, is willing to say he can't come to the parliament. They're willing to stand up to him and they've got a lot more to lose. And we're saying, no, no, but, you know, we want to make a transactional business relationship. I think, you know, I, I, I don't no, agree with that. Okay, so uh, Ali, do, do you want to respond to that first? So, uh, I can sure respond to that, so for sure. A few things, a few points. Yeah. Um, diplomacy and politics is often about what is not said as opposed to what is said. Mm. From a purely human rights activist perspective, uh, your friend in the studio is absolutely right. Uh, normal people, people with a conscience, wouldn't necessarily put themselves in these situations. But we're talking about statecraft. And before anything else, we need to define what we mean by a transactional relationship between Pakistan and the United States. In this context, the United States has always viewed its relationship with Pakistan from a security paradigm, from a security lens. What that means is, vis-a-vis the Russians or the Soviets, vis-a-vis Al-Qaeda after 9-11 or the Taliban, that transactional nature hasn't, will not end and hasn't ended. In fact, it is entering a new phase of transaction with the U.S. withdrawal or the possibility of a U.S. withdrawal with Pakistan as a guarantor for the Taliban. Having said that, a broad-based relationship like the United States has with the Indians, for example, even if a security paradigm doesn't work, they have other incentives, economic, social, so on and so forth. That is a multilateral relationship, something that Pakistan has not been able to have with the United States in its 70 years. And despite these perceived successes in, at the White House recently with the visit of Imran Khan, will not have until and unless Pakistan moves beyond a security-based paradigm. And, and do, do, you think he actually, do you think he actually succeeded in convincing anybody in America um, in, in doing that, moving beyond the security paradigm? He convinced the Americans to continue, to continue dealing with Pakistan purely on the security paradigm. Because keep in mind that this, even this transactional relationship had come to a complete halt in the tail end of the Obama years and the beginning of the Trump era, where there was so much negativity, there was no communication to move the transactional relationship forward. Mm. Forget about a multilateral relationship. Sure. Okay. So that has given an opening. Okay. All right. It's given an opening. Okay. I said you, you're going to you're gonna sort of yeah, present your I view. Mean, you know, what it is, is we have to go back to your original question, which was, how, what was the impact of um, Prime Minister for Pakistan Imran Khan's visit to USA? Well, going back to that original question, the impact has been on many different levels. Certainly, the perception has been changed, like I keep saying. The interest, look, Imran Khan went there to protect the interests of Pakistan. What are they? They range from security, which your colleague was earlier mentioning, as well as economical. So we, he met with um, IMF head, World Bank head, he was protecting the interests of Pakistan in terms of trade. He, if you listen to his interviews, he over and over said, look, we want a relationship on equal footing, not on you do this, I do that. Nothing like that. So this is a new paradigm shift in Pakistan-U.S. relationship. All the previous relationships that um, Pakistan had with USA, it's, yes, it's transactional based. And do you know why that was? The reason was because of the inept 
and I guess incompetent leadership that Pakistan had. They they couldn't think beyond the. That, that's not true. All of the case because I I remember if if you read. Oh come on! It's the army, dude. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's a, <laughs> a actual relationship between the okay, United so States. How did, okay, so how did? Okay, if, if it was the army, determining that particular okay. policy. That's why it doesn't move beyond security. Hmm, that's what right. you're talking about. Okay, well, if it was the army, then how? So why did all these civilians um, made all this money out of it, and why did they, you know, I guess... But they, 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 just pop, they, they knew they couldn't do anything about it, and they just profited from the, the whole situation, to be honest. This is the first time I... I, I had because the army also made money. Because the army <laughs> so, also made money. <laughs> the army made the most money, and the exactly. down effect in any patronage-based society... As Pakistan is based on so a feudal system, my point exactly with, the, with the biggest exactly. land-owning so entity being the Pakistan Armed Forces. Right. So okay. my point exactly, which is, is you're actually saying the same thing I am, but in a different way, which is which was that the reason we had this transactional relationship. Yes, it was the army, but it was also the incompetent and inept leadership. Now we have a civilian leadership now as well, which has always been accused, or oh, the army is behind it, or the military behind it. That's the that's the accusation. But you know. This gone beyond that. This leadership that we have currently in Pakistan is genuine, is for the people of Pakistan. And this guy, he didn't say, I mean, you can analyze it over and over again and come up with different arguments. Oh, he did this, he did that. The reality of the matter is that re the Pakistan-USA relationship has now been reset. Direct communication channels have been established. India has been eliminated from the Afghan peace. He, like, little over a year ago, India was playing the main role. Now it's been eliminated. For the first time since even, not even Obama, I mean, we didn't even hear of Kashmir from the mouth of American presidents since I can't even remember now. And all of a sudden, he's sitting True. there and he said, oh, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll help out with Kashmir. Hmm. I mean, you can't... Yeah, but you can't... But you, you, can't you, can, you can't just say, oh, you know what, the good old argument, Pakistan is run by the military. Oh, these... I mean, come on, you can't say that over and over again because, look, the question of tonight's show was, was what, what impact... Did Imran Khan's visit made? Well, the impact has been massive on many levels. It's just that we haven't realized that. Mm. And that is the, I guess that's a sad thing because at the end of the day, Imran Khan is protecting the interests of Pakistan and okay. he's done that very well on Afghan issue, on trade issue, as well as Kashmir issue. The three main things and all these three, three things, the military is right behind that. So mm. I think um, we have to look at it in a positive manner, in a positive sense, in terms of the current leadership we have. And I've talked about the previous incompetent leadership that we had and right, okay. how they, yes, they interacted in a transactional manner. I agree with your uh, speaker earlier. Yes, there was transaction. But now if you listen to Imran Khan, he said, no more transactions, equal footing. We'll help you with that. And then in terms of trade, let's do more trade. So right, okay. Had, they know so so we need to try and try and wrap up the discussion. We're running a little bit late. Uh, I'm yeah, sorry okay. about that. So uh, Ali, just just find a few words. Uh, some say just picking up on what I said, saying about uh, the security paradigm, like you suggested within Afghanistan. Uh, some say some commentators say that Pakistan is actually now in a um, a stronger position, uh, in a sense that uh, oh. Pakistan has been asked to actually provide. Uh, uh, in a, in, an exit strategy, effectively, or uh, for for but America. So, I mean, you heard President Trump, right? He, I mean, he was saying Pakistan uh, is going to have. Ali, 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 you know, can I just that. ask Ali to Ali to comment yeah, on sorry, that? Yeah. Uh, sorry. So, Ali, so so um, it has, has did Pakistan go uh, from a position of strength basically this time? Listen, the biggest security challenge, threat 
facing Pakistan is a water scarcity which will leave one third of its population without access to clean drinking water. No, that's and that's a slightly different issue. That's a slightly different issue. But I'm, I'm saying from, from, from this the... This is all connected. This is all connected. Okay. Is well, then you talk about the economy as well. If Pakistan... Pakistan doesn't take those measures, if we get lost in these debates of what these, uh, these, these visits will get us, in the short term, try to kickstart that, we will lose vision. We have, we have already lost sight of the greater challenge which will create a lot more chaos than a failed or successful summit meeting between Imran Khan and Donald okay. Trump. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll end it there. Uh, Basit, do you have some final few words? Do you yeah, I, I just think if you think that just because of this one meeting, the entire paradigm has shifted is a joke. And secondly, I think the history will judge those who try to normalize a, a racist white supremacist president who we don't know how his end is going to, how it's going to end, how the Trump presidency will end. It's not looking very good. Um, and I think you might be made to eat your words then. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ali. Uh, as usual, you've been very insightful, uh, very entertaining. Uh, alhamdulillah. Uh, if, uh, really welcome your comments on Inspire FM all the time. I said uh, thank you very much for taking the time out and, and speaking thank to us. Pleasure. Uh, and Basit, thank you for, for staying behind today and, and having, helping with the discussion. Jazakallah, everyone. Thank you. Right. Uh, we're going to move on to a slightly different topic. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, we're going to talk about... What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the heat wave. What heat wave? What are you chatting about? There's no heat wave. <laughs> right, okay. There was a bit of a heat wave last couple of days, um, uh, yesterday in particular. Uh, and I guess a lot of people found it uncomfortable. Um, shouldn't be the case because I think we hail from a country where these temperatures are quite normal. But uh, that was the case. It was quite hot. And uh, so we have Dr. Tahir Mahmood. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Tahir Mahmood. Welcome to Dubai. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, from a health perspective, um, what what uh, is the best way, I guess, to sort of stay safe? Uh, because the heat has, uh, in France at least anyway, in, in some parts of the UK, it is a, a health risk, a hazard. And there was a yellow health warning, I think, that was given, a weather warning, I guess, that was given in terms of impact of, of the heat on, on people. And there have been deaths as well. Uh, so I guess from from a doctor's perspective, uh, what's your advice on on staying safe uh, yeah. in this in this Zabai, weather? Yeah, the heat uh, has shaken the whole country uh, yesterday, and uh, especially the train services. Uh, sorry, I said yeah. especially the train services, which came to a halt yesterday. Airport, <laughs> airport, train services, and also all sort of businesses were almost a halt yeah. um, yesterday. Um, people were uh, uh, hiding in the cool place and uh, some areas it was up to 37 but particularly uh, where I was in yesterday it was 41 degrees centigrade we, we, not, uh, we noted it oh well well so that, that is hot totally unexpected totally unexpected and uh, I think the whole the whole country felt the warmth and the, the strength of the uh, climate change yeah. Um, as a health perspective, uh, obviously it has a um, it has a, a great impact on everyone's health, especially um, people at the extreme of uh, age, for example, in children and vulnerable adults and people with chronic uh, um, problems such as diabetes, heart problems, hmm. and they were quite vulnerable. And these people are the uh, most affected, especially and also I would include pregnant women. Hmm. Uh, the, the so what, what's what's the risks then and of hot weather? Obviously, I guess uh, 
Dehydration is an obvious one. I think everyone knows yeah, about. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a heat exhaustion. Right. Which can be, you know, if you experience this much of heat for 30 minutes, people are not used to it. Mm. Like in Pakistan, India, or Sri Lanka, or Bangladesh, when we go, mm. when we go on up there, um, we used to face that much temperature almost uh, six months of the of yeah. year. But now the people they're not they're not acclimatized or they're not accustomed to this uh, heat. Right? So in this country, if you um, um, stay in that sort of heat about about an hour, so you start feeling heat exhaustion, which can be serious, like give you headache, dizziness. It can um, cause confusion, loss of appetite. Many people they had a body aches and also had a temperature. They were feeling thirsty and very uncomfortable lifestyle. So this was the part. They are they are the main signs of heat exhaustion, and uh, which were uh, uh, basically uh, felt by almost um, everyone yesterday. Yeah. Okay, so so it's, it's basically main symptoms you're saying are of heat exhaustion is the is the main threat. Uh, main systems are headache. Uh, Feeling weak? What, what was the other symptoms you were saying? Confusion. Confu- confusion, confusion, okay. Dizziness, you feel sick. And what's, what's, so what, what's, to, what's to be done about that and what can you do? I think uh, uh, the best important thing is to make sure that we are uh, in a, uh, we're not in a warm place, or in a cold place. Yeah. And many people uh, were under the roof and uh, we, should, uh, we should open the windows, mainly, mainly windows, which are not so the sun side, mm. and also try to drink as much as fluids, cold fluids as much as possible, and cool the the skin, like doing a, a spray or sponge, you take a cold bath, all these kind of things, mm. and give um, also make sure the neighbors and the people who are not able to look after themselves, we need to look after themselves as well. Mm. And that was the main important felt yesterday. Many people are living in uh, a neighborhood where they were people vulnerable who couldn't hurt themselves, they suffered most. So yeah. this is a part of the management of heat exhaustion, yeah. Right, and I guess there's other complications as well, isn't it? So you've got, I guess people have to walk, right, in the sun. Uh, they probably have to sort of walk shorter distances in and take res- refuge, I guess, under the shade, etc., with, uh, with the risk of getting sunburns, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Def- definitely. Um, people who are working outside, like building at building sites or... Um, construction side, hmm. um, they are risk of having most the the sun on top of their head all the time, hmm. and also dehydration and sunburn, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, all these kind of things. Hmm. Um, I hope uh, uh, this kind of heat wave will not come back now. That was much better than yesterday. You, you, you've had you've had enough already, have you? Oh, yesterday was the, you wouldn't believe it. I took about. Uh, pre cold bath last cold bath last night. Well, well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite it was quite bad, wasn't it? And I, I guess I guess it, it interrupts the sleep as well because I think people are not used to sort of sleeping in, in such uncomfortable sort of temperatures, uh, and and uh, I guess sleep deprivation has an impact on on I guess many factors, isn't it? In terms of work and concentration yeah, yeah. and health. Yes, yeah, sleep deprivation. <laughs> if you call, if you have to go work tomorrow morning, yeah, and see, um, I was feeling I, I, I was I was. Uh, um, encountering uh, pregnant women today, and uh, I know how the battle with this heat exhaustion and plus household work and all these kind of things, yeah. lack of uh, uh, sleep, lack of rest, and all these kind of things, it was incredibly difficult for them. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So, I, I guess uh, you mentioned a few sort of people, vulnerable people, uh, elderly, I guess, and, and the young and the pregnant. 
Uh, but you also mentioned people who are diabetic uh, risk at. Uh, now how, how would that? I mean, that's not that's not immediately obvious. Why would the di- diabetic people be uh, affected more by the heat? Well, all the people, for example, diabetes, heart problems. Yeah. They are vulnerable. They, the body temperature, the body immune system is different from these people who haven't got these problems. So they are all at risk of sudden change in body thermostat mm. and uh, imbalance in the blood pressure, diabetes control, all these kind of things. That's why the people with chronic diseases, yeah. and if they experience, they, they are under a lot of uh, heat that time. That's why they, they become vulnerable and uh, uh, at a risk of uh, getting uh, more uh, exhaustion and mm. deterioration. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, th- I think, I think uh, there have been reports, at least there were reports, that the previous time there was a heat wave in, in France that up to sort of a, a large number of people actually died, elderly that's people right, died. Yeah, How, yeah, I mean, that, that, to, to, be, to, to be honest, I mean, that, that kind, of, kind of surprises me a little bit, right? Because I can, I can get people to get thirsty and I get people to get exhausted and get headaches and stuff like that. Uh, but dying of, of uh, I mean, t- tell me what, what sort of processes go through right, where, you know, p- people actually end up dying because of the heat. Um, I don't know. I mean, it you see, you see, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, <clears throat> the body is not used to in France or in a uh, 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 large part of Europe. The temperature is very uh, different. It's... What is in uh, Southeast Asia? Yeah, and the people are not used to it, and it can cause confusion. It can cause brain damage. It can ch- change the. Uh, is is that because of is that because of the breathing, respiration? Is it or is it because of just the yeah, temperature? Yeah. That's, yeah. So, for example, when the brain, the brain is affected, so the whole body is affected, the regulatory mechanism, yeah. the heart, and also kidneys, as well as the, the your respiratory system, like breathing problems, they all part of it. This, this regulation, it, go, uh, the, uh, it become, totally become irregular mm. and out of control, especially in people who have got underlying conditions, such as heart problems, kidney problems, the regulatory mechanism is already uh, uh, not the best one. Yeah. These people, especially elderly people uh, who are confused, have got any brain problem or any, any kind of uh, uh, chronic uh, illnesses, that's mm. why these, these, uh, uh, those people, they, most of those people die with the complication of the heat stroke. Uh, uh, the, uh, so it's just basically an added factor, really, rather than, rather than the, the, the direct cause, you would say? Well, yeah, 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 yeah you can see that the, uh, the heat stroke is, is quite fatal than uh, we experience mm. in this country. It's quite effective heat stroke, yeah. Right. So, so, so okay. So, um, I, I, I guess these are some of the the signs to look out for on a uh, on a hot sort of day, like it was That's yesterday. Right, yeah. uh, but in terms of the response from the NHS, I mean, what sort of response? What sort of incidents uh, are you aware, aware of? Uh, was there a lot of people actually being hospitalised yesterday, or uh, was there a big ramp up up of calls, or and was there a, kind of like a campaign of awareness from? From the NHS I, I don't think there was a, 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 any a campaign on the NHS about this, but obviously NHS has been regularly advising people on uh, looking after themselves, like uh, um, uh, uh, creating self-care awareness among them. Mm. And yesterday the event was uh, expected and there was an alert, and um, you can see the media and the newspapers and all sorts of people, people are aware of this, and many people, most of the people, they are aware of the heat rush. The, the heat wave and fact, but many people were prepared for this, and mm. uh, I can see that most uh, chaotic uh, um, scenes were noted um, um, 
the business places on the center or area or um, the airport and the uh, railway stations. Oh, oh yeah, because because oh yeah, because because there was a. Um, I think I think on the trains it's quite actually it's quite bad actually because there's a lot of trains that were cancelled because apparently the the rail tracks were at risk of buckling under the under the temperature. Um, never yeah. heard that one before, but uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and uh, I think myself and and others as well have had to take very long journeys to be able to get home yesterday because a lot of the trains, the regular running trains, were cancelled and. There was a lot of. A lot. Yesterday, yes, yes. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. It, but in in the hospitals themselves, did you see a lot? Have you noticed or have you heard about large influx of people who were brought in because of heat-related issues uh, yesterday or the, or this week? Um, I, will be, I haven't. To be honest, I haven't got the data what happened yesterday. But obviously, emergency department uh, uh, encountered a lot of uh, heat-related uh, um, minor problems. Sure. Uh, as well as the other parts of primary care and secondary care, and uh, but still um, the executive has to come up yet. Yeah. Mm. So I, I guess the, one final thing, I guess, uh, uh, Dr. Tahir Mahmood, uh, you've been very helpful today. It's been very informative. But one one thing is that there's a lot of people who, when the sun comes out, I mean, they want to go sunbathing and and make use of the vitamin D, etc., uh, and get tan. Um, and and there are actually health risks. People say, yeah, there, there's a risk of skin cancer etc uh but but there isn't kind of like a scaling to say well if you stay this long your risk increases by this factor whatever uh i mean how what, what's what sort of i mean what sort of advice is there about sort of staying in the sun and how long is it safe before you, so you can start worrying about cancer and um, stuff like that as far as i understood that you asked me risk factor you know the longer you stay under the um sun um, more is the risk of having. Uh, so what, what's long then? Is it one hour, fifty minutes, half an hour? What, what's long? No, 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 no. There, there are some areas. There are some areas. Yeah. For a prolonged use of the sun and the naked skin, yeah, can pose the risk of skin cancers. Right. And especially people who are pre- pre- predisposed to it. For many Caucasians, the white skin people, yeah, um, they are they are risk of having skin cancers. Mm. And especially um, when they're exposed on the long term basis. And when there's a, 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 a few hours a day for the four, five, or six months, okay. Uh, but um, uh, what is underestimated the effect of the um, sunbathing on the people with the brown skin, mm. and the, also the effect of the constant skin um, bathing on the, for example, children and the other things which are not skin cancers or any infection. Mm. There's a, a lot of uh, uh, other rashes, people they get worried about the suffering, okay. warm. You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, Dr. Saab, I've run out of time now, inshallah. So, Jazakallah Khair for your contribution today. It's been really informative. No problem. Thank you. We'll very speak much. again, inshallah, some other time. Jazakallah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, listeners, uh, it's that time of the day, inshallah. Uh, come to an end of uh, the show this, uh, this week. Inshallah, next week we'll have another set of decent topics to talk about. Until then, Asalaamu Alaikum. Speak to you next week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.